0: Thank you, Hannah, Emma, Louis, Angie, and Trevor, for a wonderful opening, just for helping focus our thoughts on the one who loved us, who gave his life, and who deserves our lives and our response. Indeed, as we sang, that we would crown him King of glory, Lord and that the glory would be for him. This morning, we're going to continue in our look at uh, some of the people in the Bible, and we're going to be focused this morning on Stephen. Now, Stephen was a man of faith who exhibited the lifestyle we should all seek to live. Is that not coming true? Is, Is that okay? Stephen was a man of faith who exhibited the lifestyle that we shall all seek to live. In fact, what he knew and what he believed in and how he lived put him at odds with the societal norms of his day, and he was martyred for that. This morning, we're going to be looking at. Uh, a few things. We'll look at the setting for our story. We're going to look at some aspects of Stephen's character. We're going to just look at the opposition that came up against him in his defense. We're going to look at his death. And we're going to just look into why should we care about this? Why is this important to us so many years later? Let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, again, we just pause and thank you for this opportunity to come here before you. We just marvel that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains the universe, created us and loves us and sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sins. Father, we just marvel at that love. It's so amazing. And Father, we just pray that you would help us this morning, help me to speak the words that you would have me speak, open our hearts to the message you would have us learn today, and indeed, may all the honor and glory be yours, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go through, um, I'm going to put a few of the verses up that I'm, I'm looking at to uh, most of the material this morning is going to come from Acts chapters 6 and 7, and if you're looking for that, if you're following along in the uh, Brown Bibles and the pews, uh, that's found on page 1700. So let's just uh, take a quick look at uh, the setting here. In those days, when the number of Jews, sorry, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Jesus answered him, truly, sorry. We're having a little technical difficulties today, obviously. got a, a scripture mixed up in there. So the twelve gathered together the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert from Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, about a month ago, Carrie Geno spoke on Philip. And these verses that I just read from Acts 6 are the first time that we're introduced to both Philip and Stephen. And Kerry did a great job explaining these verses. And I'm going to let you refer to his sermon for more details on that. And that'll give us a bit more time to spend on some other aspects. Now, if you're looking for our website, it can be found at biblefellowshipassembly.ca or I'm told uh, there's a new way to get there, www.bfa.church. Suffice to say, for our purposes this morning, there were a couple of different groups of Jewish believers, and they came from different areas, they had different backgrounds, different cultures. They didn't always agree on some matters, and unfortunately, sometimes those differences came out in the church. And the apostles realized they needed to focus on ministering to the word of God and and spending time in prayer, and so they had the people choose seven men to address the issue that was being raised. So, why did I read those verses, if I'm going to say, go listen to Carrie's sermon on what he had to say about it? Well, these verses give us a good idea of some of the character of Stephen. As we read, there was a prerequisite that those seven men who were chosen had to be full of spirit and wisdom. And what we see in those verses just some of the other things that Stephen exhibited. This wasn't just something that they just decided, hey, what about this guy, this guy? They had to look to see who had lives that consistently patterned what God wanted, who had dedicated their lives to showing they were following God. So, some of the things we see here then so Stephen we know because it was prerequisite was full of the spirit and wisdom we know that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit from verse 5 he was going out and doing things of God and in verse 7 we're told the ministry bore much fruit and then later in verse 8 we're told that he was full of God's grace and God's power so to sum it up you can use a whole bunch of different words for Stephen, but he was an upright man. He was a godly man. He was a man after God's own heart. Now, we don't know what kind of time period there was between the time the seven were chosen and the time this next part comes up when there was opposition to Stephen. Um, I would guess that it wasn't too, too long before word got out of what they were doing and Uh, People objected to it. So, picking up from Acts uh, 6, verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom by the Spirit. By whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was that like the face of an angel. So who were the freedmen? had the synagogue, they're likely descendants of free slaves of Rome, Roman citizens. And uh, these people probably would have been taken as slaves by the Roman general Pompey. And later they came back and they formed the synagogue. Now, interesting, it's likely that the Apostle Paul was a member of this synagogue. And so when they were arguing with, these people were opposing Stephen, and when they couldn't Win the argument because of what he was saying and the wisdom of God that he was displaying, then they decided to take another tack. They changed the subject. So they weren't going to win the debate, so they changed the subject and they accused them of blasphemy. Now, the Sanhedrin was a supreme legal and religious authority, and the members addressed administrative and civil matters, and they were kind of like our Supreme Court. And this is the third of four times that the believers were brought before the Sanhedrin. And what's interesting is they saw Stephen's face looking like that of an angel. And they're accusing, one of the things they were accusing him of was saying, you know, he's not following the customs that were brought down by Moses. And yet, the same Moses, when he came down, his face radiated, like, radiated God's glory. And the people couldn't look at him because his face was so radiant. And here we have Stephen being accused of changing the customs brought down by Moses. So, what is Stephen's defense for these accusations? We see this in Acts 7. And Stephen's defense is filled with references to the First Testament. Sorry, um, is filled with references to the First Testament. When you go through, if you read through Acts 7, you see references right through the, the story of the Old Testament. How he talked about the patriarchs. And you go through, go through Genesis and Exodus, you keep going through. He talked about Joshua. And Joshua's his book on Joshua. He talked about um, the prophets. And he get, he goes on, but it's just full of the Old Testament. And so Stephen really knew what the scriptures said, and he knew Israel's history. In one, it starts off saying, The high priest asked him, Are these charges true? Now, it's possible that Caiaphas at the time was still the high priest. And you may remember that Caiaphas was a high priest who accused Jesus of blasphemy in Matthew 25. Sorry, Matthew 26 and 25. And Stephen's defense, when he gets up there, he doesn't defend himself per se, but what he does is he stands up and he gives a message. And he tells them about the history of Israel and the history of how God was working for the nation, trying to draw them back and telling them all these things. And essentially what he's doing is he's turning the tables on his accusers in his defense. I'm going to take what he said in Acts 7, and you can kind of sum it up in a bunch of ways, but I'm going to say that there's about three main themes that run through his defense or his message in Acts chapter 7. The first one is just that God's grace is shown to the people into the nation of Israel over time and in different ways. So it starts off with Abraham and then he starts talking about uh, Jacob and Moses. He keeps going on. But he talks about how God has, over the, the, the decades, over the centuries, just gone out and reached out to Israel and used these people to go and try and bring the nation to himself. One of the other key themes is that God's blessings are not limited to any geography. His blessings extend beyond the temple. His blessings extend beyond Jerusalem. It goes out. And Israel as a nation has shown a pattern of disobeying over and over. Despite the fact that God sent people out there, God showed great signs and wonders, the people kept turning away. And he kept trying to bring them back. So let's look a bit more about God's grace and the geography on it. So, in, what we see in the Bible is that we start with God calling Abram at time Abram before he became Abraham to go out from the land he's living in. And the Bible doesn't give us any indication of the type of person Abram was at the time. It doesn't say he was a righteous person. He was a godly person. We For whatever reason, God chose Abraham and told him, called him when he was in Mesopotamia and said, go out to the land of Ur or the land of Haran, and I'm going to lead you here. And so he does. And you see this in Genesis 12. And we also know from Genesis 12 that Abraham was an old man at the time. And yet, despite that, God said, made a promise to him, said his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars and as the, the sand. Later in God's providence, we see Joseph. Joseph, one of twelve, and seemed to be a good person. He was the youngest. His father liked, loved him. And what happened to him? Oh, his brothers sold him off into slavery. Yet in God's providence he looked after Joseph he protected him and used him to help the nation God used Moses to deliver the people from Pharaoh and he took them through the Red Sea where he led them for 40 years Moses was we we know that he had a royal birth but he was left there by the people, But he was left there. Essentially, he was put out into the water and essentially left to die at that time. And But he was rescued. And God took that bad situation through his grace, through his providence, and he put Moses in a place and led Moses so that he can bring the people back to him. Joshua, one of the people talked about in Acts 7, one of the, the two who was led into the Promised Land, of all the people who went across the Red Sea, who wrote in the wilderness, only two got to see the Promised Land, Joshua and Caleb. King David, who had a heart for the Lord, and he wanted to build the tabernacle for God, but God said no. Through the prophet Nathan, he said, no, you're not the right person. Your son Solomon is going to build that temple. And we know that, so, this, so we see God working through people, reaching out to the nation and trying to draw them back to him time after time. And when we look at where these people were, we know that there's no geographic limit to this. So in verse 3, we know that Abraham was in Mesopotamia and he goes out to Haran. Joseph was in Egypt, not in Jerusalem, in Egypt. Moses went out to Midian before he came back and helped the people. In verses forty-seven to, 44 to 47, we're told about the tabernacle of testimony, the, the temple as the dwelling place of God. In verse 44 to 47, we read this. Our forefathers had the tabernacle testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove them out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. The Israelites really expected to find God in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And this probably extended also to the city of Jerusalem. But that's where they expected God to be. And one of the charges against Stephen was that he spoke against this holy place, likely talking about the tabernacle and later the temple. And this was a serious charge to say, no, God is not just here, God is elsewhere. Stephen reminds them though that God isn't restricted to these places and he Acts uh, 7 48 to 50 he quotes from Isaiah says however the Most High does not live in houses made by men as the prophet says heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool what kind of house will you build for me says the Lord or where will my resting place be Has not my hand made all these things? Again, this was very offensive for people to think that you can worship God outside of the temple. And they wanted, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come back to that temple to reign. Isaiah 66 continues though, and we read, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah also speaks about the upcoming judgment for those who oppose him and prophesies that salvation will extend to the Gentiles, most of us. In Isaiah 66:18, we read, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, not just the Jewish people, all of us as well. And they shall come and see my glory, And later on, he references the new heaven and the new earth as well. Jesus also contradicted the current beliefs when he spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain. But you, the Jewish people, see that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. and truth. Stephen noted that through history the people or nation demonstrated a pattern of disobedience toward God. God told Abraham that the people would be disobedient. He sent Moses to lead the Israelites, and what happened? They rebelled. Over and over, they rebelled against him. In Acts 7.39, we're told, But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts, turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol into the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. And again, all those people who were out there in the wilderness, none of them got into the Promised Land, save two. After reminding them of their history and the prophecy about the temple, Stephen chastised them for being like their fathers reading from Acts 7:51, 50, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law and that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Stephen looked up and he saw Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Now there's a couple of possible meanings here, but certainly we know that the Son of Man is a fulfillment of Daniel 7, which refers to one like the Son of Man who will have everlasting dominion and be worshipped by all peoples, nations, and men of every language. So way, way before this, There was a prophecy that the Son of Man, Jesus, was going to come. And he would be the one to have dominion. And he would be the one to have authority. And he would rule. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So by referencing Jesus as the Son of Man, he's saying he is the one. He's the one that people prophesied about. He's the one we've been waiting for. Don't you guys get it? And he saw him standing, not sitting. In the Bible, often it refers to Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. We just saw that in Psalm 110 here. So why did he see Jesus standing? Well, perhaps a couple of things, and I think they're both plausible. and They could both be there. One is that as Stephen was dying, he saw Jesus welcoming him. Jesus was standing there to welcome Stephen. And the other is that when the accused and a judge, when a a verdict was being rendered, the accused and the judge would stand up, and that's when the verdict would be rendered. And it's quite possible Jesus was looking down here as judge of this whole situation and rendering his verdict on this one, both on the people and on Stephen and his life. Interesting, when we look at his death too, we look at the parallels between what happened to Stephen and what happened with Jesus. So, we know that they had to be taken out of the city because they couldn't be executed in the city. They are both executed for blasph- for the charge of blasphemy. When they're, when they're dragged out, And when Stephen said, Lord, Stephen commended his spirit into Jesus, into Jesus' hands, the Lord said something similar like that too, didn't he? And when he was dying, he prayed for his accusers. It's interesting too that when he was being stoned and when he was there in front of the group, the expectation was the accused person would have confessed their sins. But in this case, Stephen said, well, no, the sin is actually of these other people. And then he prayed, Lord, please don't hold this against them. Some people have used the disobedience of the Jewish nation as just one of many excuses to discriminate, to hate the Jewish people. And, to me, the Bible's pretty clear that despite their disobedience as a nation, God showed that He loved them and He still loves them. The prophets warned that God's going to punish the people, the nation, for the disobedience. But the prophets also said that He's going to punish all these other nations for going out and taking advantage of Israel for their hard heartedness, for their attitude, for their proudness, saying, I did it all myself. And not coming to the acceptance that actually, no, it was an all powerful God who was behind it, who was controlling this. What we see in, in then is then, is many disobeyed. The nation as a whole disobeyed. There were, however, some who followed the one true God. And in those days, there were many gods that people would pray to. Uh, people would pray to a God for this, for this, for this. And they would create images or idols and pray to it. We saw this earlier, where the people just formed, um, had Aaron form a golden calf, and then they turn around and pray to it. In the First Testament, you see how people created all these things. They had pole Asherah poles. Um, Isaiah talks about the fact that They take a piece of wood, and with part of the wood, they burn it, and they bake their bread. And with the other part, they create an idol, and they fall down and worship it. But is it really that different now? Well, in our society, many still disobey. There are some who follow the one true God still. And there are still lots of false gods. People try and chart their own path to... God, their own way to heaven. Uh, It's not the way of the Bible, but people decide that they're going to chart their own path to get there. There are other things that are false gods. We just don't call them false gods. It's things that people put on the pedestal and make it the focus of their lives. Maybe it's career, sports, fame, money, whatever. But they're all gods, and they're all false gods. In carries message on Philip a few weeks ago, he noted how the event we looked at this morning was the beginning of the spread of the gospel to the rest of the world. And the world still needs to hear that message. And we should strive to show the courage and the boldness to be a witness for God, as Stephen did. Early I noted Stephen was a godly person. He was a person of godly character. He was upright. And you can come up with your own term for just the type of person he was but he really wanted to follow God and he had he was a man after God's heart and we know that he was so godly that when the sanhedrin looked at him they saw his face like the face of an angel and because he was so close to following God he was willing to go out and tell the truth and tell people about Jesus regardless of the cost he didn't know what the end result was going to be but he knew that his role was to go and spread the good word, the message. I thought it would be nice to say that I'm giving you a sneak preview of my autobiography this morning. Um, I must admit, I have a lot of work and a lot of growing to do before I can say I'm like this Stephen here. Now, some might look and say, well, gee, he was a martyr. He had this gift, uh, he was so close to God, of course he can go up there and do that right at the time of his death. Well, through, We saw earlier, though, that even when he was chosen, he was a man of good reputation, so people knew that he was walking consistently with God. So, and the same thing has to happen for us. The way that God worked in Stephen's life before, God wants to work in our lives. And we need to be faithful in the small things so that when the bigger things come along, we've got that practice under our belt. We've got the foundation so that when something else comes along, we're ready for it. So what are a couple of things that uh, can help us with that? Looking ahead, for one. Do we know what lies ahead? In John 9, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. In John 3:18, Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we all start off on the wrong path, and it's only through faith in Jesus that we get off that right path and can have, that, have our sins forgiven and have that eternity with him in heaven. So if anyone's here who has never chosen that, made that decision, and chosen life, as I'm putting it here, the message is pretty simple. Jesus died for our sin, for each of us. All those things that we've done, and none of us is perfect. Even the forefathers weren't perfect. But God's standard is perfection. And Jesus died for our sin. And it's a matter of trusting in Jesus as your personal Savior and your Lord, and realizing he died for your sin. Not just for the sin of people out there, but for all of us. And it's about a relationship. God doesn't want us to have a set of rules and regulations one of the reasons he wasn't happy with the people is they said, yes, Lord, we're going to follow you. And then turned around and did their own thing. So even though their lips and their mouths were saying one thing, God knew that their hearts were going the other way. And so he wants to, to have a relationship with us. And in that relationship, the Lord gets first place. It's not all about me, me, me. It's about us looking in our lives to honor the Lord. So, we've all fallen short of God's standard. Well, if we look at a few things, how can we kind of take those steps, maybe for some, they're baby steps, maybe for some, they're at that stage where they're ready to just be martyred and maintain their testimony for Jesus. How are we doing our priorities? Are we spending time with God during the day? Do we spend time reading his word? If you're like me, you probably spend too much time playing on chess or some other game on the computer. Not enough time doing the other stuff. Do we take time during the week, maybe a day a week, to rest, to recharge, to recalibrate? We can get so focused and just running, running, running. We don't take time to look up and see if we're going in the right direction. Another way to help us just be more like Stephen is just to remember how much God has forgiven each of us. It's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? Jesus was talking to one of the... went to have dinner with a Pharisee named Simon. And this woman came to the house and she was weeping and wiping his feet with her tears. And she had a jar of alabaster perfume that she was putting on it. And he looked at... Gee, if only he knew... And then Jesus told him, asked him about who would love somebody more, somebody who had a debt of fifty denarii or fifty dollars. You can translate to whatever you, what you want, or five thousand. And the person said, "Well, the one who had the greater debt forgiven." And Jesus says, "Yes, you're right. The one who has more forgiven loves more. The one who has less forgiven loves less." And looked at the woman and said, I tell you, her, sins, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven loves little. Or, sorry, forgiven little loves little. Stephen's name, I read, means Victor's crown. And just as Stephen saw Jesus standing there, looking, and I'm going to suggest to welcome him, and also looking at his life at the same time as well as those of his accusers I think that Stephen received when he got there I don't know if it was a high five I don't know if it was just what it was but I believe that Jesus came to Stephen saw Stephen and said well done my good and faithful servant and that's the reward that I hope we can all have at the end of the day well done my good and faithful servant I'll ask the uh, music musicians to come back up please and then we'll close in uh, prayer after that song. Hosanna, save us. We praise you, Jesus. Father, we just thank you again for this opportunity to gather. We thank you for your love and your goodness. Thank you for this example that Stephen has given us. Help us, Father, just to have His boldness and His courage to go out and just share the good news with those who haven't come to that realization that Jesus loved them and He died for them. Lord, I pray nobody here would leave without Jesus today and that we would all just, as we just sung, be focused and live our lives in ways that just bring honor and glory to You. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.